0: Closest election in B.C. history with Christy Clark looking to form government by the slimmest of margins. How will it work and how long will it last? Global B.C.'s Keith Paltry, the Vancouver Suns Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw join me with their analysis. Later in the show, we'll hear from Conservative Party leadership hopeful Rick Peterson. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome and good morning, blue skies and sunshine here in Kamloops, but there are plenty of clouds on the political horizon. Joining me to talk about that, of course, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Gentlemen, welcome. Good
1: morning, good morning.
2: Good morning.
0: Before we get into all the BC Poly drama, I wanted to take a second to talk about Grace McCarthy, of course, who passed away yesterday. Uh, Vaughn, I read your column this morning and was struck with a point that you made that uh, if a few things had gone McCarthy's way, BC's political landscape would have been much different today.
1: Yeah, the Social Credit Party had three chances to pick McCarthy as leader and had they picked her the first two times in 86 or in 1991, I think she could have changed political history. I think she would have been a more stable choice than Bill Vanderzam in 86 and I think uh, in 91 she might have uh, Social Credit Party might have survived that election. Uh, the uh, Rita Johnson who was the leader they picked couldn't have beaten uh Mike Harcourt and I'm not sure McCarthy could have either, but I think she might might have held off the Liberals, and Social Credit might have survived. So, you know, the Social finally picked her as leader in 93 when it was a hopeless cause, but uh, she's somebody who could have changed political history.
0: And, Keith, I caught a comment from you on Facebook yesterday reflecting on the four hours you spent with Grace McCarthy uh, for the Van der book that you and Gary Mason did.
3: Yeah, I spent four hours at her house in Vancouver, uh, and she made me chocolate chip cookies and chicken soup and insisted I eat all of them. And, <laughs> and um, she really was a... Uh, uh, a very warm, kind person, but also very politically shrewd and at times politically ruthless. And she was very much uh, a master at uh, at the political game. And she was really one of the more remarkable people I've ever covered in in BC politics. I mean, she was genuinely uh, positive, optimistic. You say good morning, Grace, and she says, "It's not a good morning. It's a great BC morning." Every time. <laughs> I mean, and she genuinely meant that. She was. Uh, always gushing about British Columbia. It was on her watch, I think it was her deputy John Poole who came up with the slogan uh Supernatural BC. Uh she was a pivotal player in shepherding Expo 86, Guy Train, uh a number of other initiatives of Convention Center, the original Convention Center. Uh she very much was a a, a pivotal and powerful cabinet minister in the Bill Bennett government and in the Bill, Bill Vanderzaym government until her break with Vanderzaym and she played a key role in uh in laying the the groundwork that eventually caused Vanerzam to be forced from office it started with her dispute over the Expo land sale but uh, as i say she was quite remarkable and uh, just uh you don't see people like that larger than life in bc politics very often and i would argue she's the second most Powerful woman in the history of BC politics, Christy Clark would probably rank up above that simply because she's been elected premier. Mm. But uh, Grace McCarthy on her list of accomplishments, I think, outweighs Clark's as well.
0: Yeah, I was talking to Angela Akibuchi here in the NL newsroom uh, when the news broke yesterday, and his observation was that she always had a bright smile, was always cheerful, was always friendly, but his sense uh, was behind that smile was a whole lot of steely resolve. Oh, yeah. And she wasn't a woman to be messed with. Uh, Rob, she was a little before your time, but your thoughts?
2: Yeah, you know, you can't help but draw parallels in some way to, to her and Christy Clark. I think, though, what Clark is dealing with now is that uh, people are tired of what they view as a bit of a shtick on her part, whereas, you know, Grace McCarthy lasted for so many years because there was an authentic quality to her that, that I think people saw. And so she she blazed the trail for people like Christy Clark. There's no doubt about that. But, uh, you know, I don't know if they're they're directly comparable in the way some people are probably doing.
0: Mm. She also uh, worked tirelessly with charities, including one she founded with her daughter to serve children with intestinal problems. Uh, everyone I talked to yesterday, Vanderzan and Bud Smiths, uh, mentioned that outside of politics, she had endless and a boundless energy, uh, which she threw into every project she did, including many, many charities. So uh, our thanks to Grace McCarthy for everything she accomplished. And of course, our condolences to her mm-hmm. family. Ah, uh, guys, let's talk about uh, the election result. Uh, it's one for for the history books. Uh, we finally got a result about two weeks after the whole thing went down. Uh, we have uh, forty three seats for the Liberals. Uh, they didn't get the the one seat that they wanted to in Courtney Comox, uh, so now we forge forward. So, Keith, uh, how do we how do we proceed from here?
3: I'm not going to use the phrase "uncharted waters" because I think that's been overused. Yes. I think we got to we got to come up with different cliches to describe what we're going through. But uh, the talks continue between the Greens and the Liberals and the and the Greens and the NDP. I think yesterday the Greens uh, talked to the Liberals. I think today they talked to the NDP. Uh, when you look at it uh, on the face of it, there's a lot of commonality between the BC Green platform and the BC NDP platform. They share a lot of policies. They share a similar. Uh, attitude and commitment towards fighting climate change. Uh, so there's, there's certainly more agreement there than there is between the Greens and the NDP. Uh, the, uh, on the other hand, uh, John Horgan and, and Andrew Weaver face a math problem, as we like to describe it, in that if Weaver goes with the NDP, that only uh, uh, provides a 44-seat uh, government, which is a bare majority. And it was really almost... Um, Uh, dysfunctional. You cannot run Mm -hmm. the house with 44 seats, I think. You've got to put someone in the speaker's chair. It brings you to 43. Then when you go into committee of the whole, one of your persons has to sit as chair, which means you're down to 42 seats, and the other side has 43. And that's that's the committee that That basically passes legislation or debates the legislation. So it's uh, one veteran New Democrat thought that would be an ungovernable situation. So if you're Andrew Weaver, and he's told us he wants a long-term arrangement here because he wants proportional representation to come in, and that's going to be a two-year exercise, he may have to hold his nose and go with the BC Liberals and and force change on them. You know, require them to embrace some of his policies whether it's a a ban on corporate union donations, a ban on the grizzly bear hunt, some other green initiatives, uh, official party status, uh, in exchange for more stability, because then you'd have 46 seats, and you do have a little more flexibility to run the house. And Glenn Clark ran ran that house, the NDP ran that house for five years with a slightly larger majority than 46, but uh, Andrew Weaver may have to decide that's where the stability comes that he needs to accomplish his number one priority, which is proper proportional representation. But if he doesn't that he's going to get blasted by his own supporters
0: because uh, they like the BC Liberals. Yeah. Interesting, though, his number one priority used to be getting rid of union and corporate donations, so that was an interesting switch this week, Vaughn.
1: Yeah, he's he's got the union and corporate donations. He'll get party status, and if he can get three years or two even out of the House, a two-year term, he may be able to get his referendum in place on proportional representation and get a new voter system. Um, I mean, the the thing for Weaver is... He wants to show that power sharing can work. In order to show that power sharing can work, he needs time. If if he makes a deal with the NDP, make his own supporters happy, and that falls apart in a matter of weeks or months, all he's done is demonstrate that power sharing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. We'll be back into a provincial election that'll be one of the most polarized in history, and Weaver's party might get liquidated by the voters in a desire to create a majority government. So, the the dilemma for Weaver is it's easy to see that Horgan can give him anything he wants on the policy front, but the one thing Horgan can't do because of the math problem that Keith just mentioned is guarantee three or four years, whereas the liberals can, if they can get Weaver or a true partnership with Weaver say, 46 seats, that gives that partnership would have 46 seats. The NDP would have 41. That five-seat gap, uh, look, the NDP managed for five years with a three-seat gap. Mm-hmm. Socred's managed in the late 70s with a five-seat gap. So it's, it's a genuine dilemma for Weaver, and he's not kidding when he says he's negotiating with both parties.
0: Yeah. John Horgan uh, defiant in his comments this week. Uh, Rob, I noted your column basically saying he has a very short window here. If he's any kind of bid for power, essentially uh, of course, Christy Clark and the B.C. liberals are the government until uh, someone proves they're not.
2: Yeah, I mean John Horgan is a premiership or bust uh, situation right now. If if they want to be premier, uh, they have to bring the Clark government down now. uh, Right away. You can't fiddle around with, well, we're going to you know, the Greens are gonna give her one budget and then we'll see where we're at next year and maybe John can take a shot. That's not the, the Constitutional Convention doesn't work that way. So you have to defeat the incumbent government immediately on a confidence vote and go to the LG and 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 give a crack at that. Um to pick up on Vaughn and, and Keith's points, I I wrote something today that said, you know, there's three kind of main underlying currents going on with the negotiations. You have the policies, you have the personalities, and you have the math. And you know, on the personalities side It's well documented that Andrew Weaver and John Horgan are are not as, perhaps, respectful uh, or as close in their collaborative working relationship as Christy Clark. And I think that's why John Horgan is directly at the negotiating table, uh, where he's trying to basically reset that relationship face-to-face and and, uh, fix a little bit of the uh, faux pas that he did uh, in the past. And then the other thing is, uh, I mean, you could... Talking to the Greens, you know, they point out that it is of paramount uh, importance to them that they maintain their identity, no matter what agreement they sign or or get into. And you can make an argument that, uh, you know, it is easier for them to maintain their identity in a deal with the Liberals, because they're so different, because they don't agree Mm. on so much. And if you can, um, that gives them something to to maintain their uniqueness when they, uh, so many people want them to join with the NDP on the NDP side because it would be great to get this pain in the rear end left wing version of the NDP coalition back into the family fold so that you never hear from them again assimilate them into the the NDP machinery and i think the greens are quite wisely uh, looking at that also and saying you know, we have to go back to the polls a year, two, three years from now. How do we maintain our difference if we just get absorbed into the New Democrats as, a, as New Democrats light? So that's part of what they're thinking as well. Those right. are very good points.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's take a quick break and uh, keep on this topic on the other side here on Inside Politics on Radio NL with uh, Keith, Rob, and Vaughn.
4: Radio NL.
2: RadioNL.com. Radio
0: Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. And we're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Keith Baldry, and Rob Shaw about where we go from here now that we have an election result. I wanted to take a deeper dive into the the Green Dilemma. As you guys noted, uh, there is a lot of risk here for Andrew Weaver and his party. I was talking to Norman Ruff the other day who, who also noted to me that uh, historically any smaller party that's seen as propping up another party in government usually gets decimated in the following election. So is Weaver smart to avoid any kind of formal coalition and maybe do something a little looser, maybe bill by bill, Keith?
3: Well, I would. Uh, that was <coughs> that was my take until Weaver said he wants a long term yeah. uh, arrangement uh, in order to uh, push proportional representational uh, re- representation through. Uh, and as von Dona, that takes that's going to take a couple years to to sort of get all the things done before that can be accomplished. But and you can't do that on a bill by bill basis. So um, that seems to uh, suggest that's where he wants to head. And Norman Roth's right. I mean, history does show that. Um, where the, these small parties, are, the notori- most uh, glaring example was the Liberal Democrats in, in England just a few years ago, part of a coalition, and they were just completely annihilated. It. They disappeared. Bob Ray had a piece in The Globe yesterday, noting that he uh, was a, a junior partner to David Peterson in Ontario mm-hmm. uh, in the 80s uh, or in the 90s, uh, and then was subsequently relegated to opposition in the next election. But then, after that, his party rose to power. So um, there is that, that, the long-term view here, and I think Rob made some excellent points there, that the Greens have to be wary of being absorbed and uh, assimilated into the NDP. Uh, they have to uh, maintain their identity, uh, even if it means being a, perhaps a junior partner to the B.C. Liberals. As Rob said, they're so different from each other. Nobody's going to mistake one for the other. Uh, and come election time, maybe that that's pr- allows the Greens to provide a starker choice to voters, that there is a difference between them and the B.C. Liberals, even though they partnered together um, for, for a couple of years to push through uh, some policies.
0: Yeah, sounds like Andrew Weaver has a tricky road to walk, Vaughn.
1: Well, yeah. The interesting thing, though, is when you talk to Greens and advocates of proportional representation, I mean, the first thing you point out is, well, it suits the Greens. They would win more seats under PR. But when you get to the discussion about proportional representation means permanent minority governments, the Greens say, well, yeah, but that's a good thing, because you entrench power-sharing. So if you follow the logic of what Weaver says he wants, which is two or three years, long enough to bring in a referendum, get it passed, he hopes, and bring in proportional representation then the next provincial election would be fought under different rules and instead of being absorbed as would happen under the old political system first past the post weaver might well be able to go on and win a bunch of seats and be a partner in the next government as well so it really is about andrew weaver's long-term vision which is for a different kind of political system that's less polarizing and more into power sharing If that's his ultimate goal, and it sounds like it is, then, you know, he is really looking for which party, which partnership can give him that.
0: Yeah, but uh, dreams and goals are one thing. Getting into reality is a whole other thing, Rob.
2: Yeah, you know, to pick up on... Dream
1: Weaver, I yeah. say. <laughs> I've never heard that
2: before. Cue the song. <laughs> um, I also think there's risk, you know, for other the other parties. Uh, we uh, Horgan is clearly going to give Andrew Weaver whatever he wants. But it would be suicidal for the B.C. liberals to compromise on issues in which uh, they got elected in uh, ridings in the interior and in the north. Uh, it, Site C and Kinder Morgan uh, are not issues in which I think the, you know, the liberals would be willing to uh, reverse themselves. And it would be, it would be poor for them to do it in the sense that they have to go back to the polls. Uh, At some point, and those are ridings, you know, Fraser-Nicola and other ridings where, you know, jobs from the pipeline uh, help them win, and so you you kind of get to this scenario in your mind where, if the Greens and the Liberals, for example, could agree on supply and confidence motions, a budget and a throne speech that do what the Greens want, but allow both of them to fight each other on issues that define them as parties line. For example, uh, at Site C, find some way to, I mean, they're not going to cancel Site C, but you could uh, make sure that it never happens again the way that it did without a BCUC review. Mm. Things like that that allow the agreement to disagree so that everyone maintains their identity and can still fight with each other in, in, in on key issues. Because for the Liberals, it would be just as perilous as the Greens if they give away too much to their base. What are they going to run on in the next election? So yeah. that's the risk for them.
0: I was, I was talking to a, a former politician on the right side of the spectrum, Uh, who floated the idea to me that that he thinks John Horgan would be wiser to close the door on Andrew Weaver and sit back with the hope that the Liberals implode under Christy Clark, that the Greens kind of wear that coalition, and then he could go on and, and hopefully clean up in the next election. Anything to that kind of, Keith, what do you think?
3: a bit of a gamble on horgan's part as rob noted earlier he's got one limited window here Mm. uh to become a premier if uh, the liberals are not going to implode under clark in the short term if they get to 46 seats as Vaughn pointed out um that's a five point gap the the NDP existed for five years in government with with a three seat gap so uh it's hard for to see these leadership issues usually evolve over time. Uh, There have been questions, can Christy Clark hang on? Well, if she gets to to form government with 46 seats in a coalition with Weaver, there's not going to be any, um, you know, uh, cries for her head in the short term. Maybe long term, as the prospect of the next election draws closer, and if there's internal polling that shows she is a problem or her image is a problem, or as Rob referred to earlier, her shtick is a problem, uh, that's when leadership will be... um, uh, you know, put to the test, but that could be two years from now, and by that time, mm-hmm. uh Horgan can sit there and, and wait for them to fall, but doesn 't mean he becomes premier; it just means there 's another election and i 'm not sure that's that 's necessarily the safest thing for horgan to to uh to hope for it It may be the best thing he can hope for if, if obviously if Weaver shuts the door on him. But um, I think the key here, if he wants to be premier, he's got to be premier in a matter of weeks. And if it, we wait longer than that, uh, we, we're simply at another election. Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, I think the the
1: NDP's goal is to give Weaver whatever he wants to become, for for Horgan to become premier. The the problem as we've identified, is the one thing he can't give Weaver is a guarantee that a 44-43 majority would be manageable for very long. I think that's one reason, by the way, why you know we, we suspect that feelers are being put out by New Democrats to see if any liberals would be willing to cross to them Mm. liberals who might be fed up with Clark, or whether or not the current speaker of the legislature, Linda Reed, would continue to agree to continue to serve as speaker. If she did, that would spare Horgan from having to give up one of his own members to be Speaker of the House. It seems like everything's a gamble, Rob.
2: There's a, there's a lot of pressure on John Horgan to become premier, to not let the opportunity pass. I agree with the premise of the original question. It would be smarter in the long run to watch for him not to do it. But this is a, you know, a party that's been out of power for 16 years mm-hmm. and desperately wants to be on the other side of the House. It's so frustrating to be in opposition, to have no one listen to you, to have your ideas dismissed. So many of them ran again and again on the idea that they would get a chance to enact their change. And so it's, a, it's a, a restraint, a self-restraint issue for the New Democrats, and I think so many of them just want to take power now no matter the circumstances uh, and and be damned to the long-term political strategy of it. So that's a that's an incalculable uh, pressure on Horgan behind the scenes.
3: All right. Like, ph- psychologically, for to spend another two or three years in opposition under these circumstances would be, I think, psychologically g- g- uh, gutted for yeah. the NDP. They've already a number of members of that caucus have spent 12 years in opposition. They thought they had this one won. And this, the prospect of another two or three years in opposition, as Rob says, where nobody really pays attention to or you have no power at all, I just think would be gutting for, for a number of them.
0: All right. Uh, got to break to the bottom of the hour and get the news with Bob Price. On the other side, uh, one final bid in Richmond, Queensborough, to have another judicial recount there. We'll talk about the possibilities of that happening with Keith, Rob, and Vaughn right after this. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director, Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw about the fallout from the provincial election. Uh, guys, uh, news out of New Westminster uh, that in the riding Richmond-Queensboro that the NDP campaign there is making some noise about applying for a judicial recount. Uh, the voting gap, which is 134, doesn't qualify, but they're hanging their hat on voter irregularities. Uh, thoughts on that, Vaughn?
1: You have to show, to get a judicial recount, you have to persuade the court that the number of irregularities exceed uh, the the gap. So they have to show at least, I would guess, 135 irregularities. The other problem is, of course, you get the recount, you have to win uh, the vote recount, which means you probably need, what, two or 300 irregularities, mm-hmm. because obviously some of them are going to go for the other side. So I'd say it's an outside chance. I don't blame the New Democrats, given how much difference it would make to them to win one more seat for giving it a try, but they may have trouble persuading the courts to revisit that result. So yeah, I'm not surprised, surprised
3: if this goes anywhere. I'm not sure they're going to get the court's attention. As they do as Vaughn says, uh, 134 votes sounds like a narrow margin, but still, that's a lot of votes to overturn. So I've got a note from Jaz Johal, the winner, winning Liberal candidate, uh, saying good luck to them, but he doesn't <laughs> seem to be particularly worried about it.
0: Yeah, I'm not even sure the courts will approve it. Quite frankly, Rub.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I had a chance to sit through a judicial recount in 2008 federally. We applied to the courts, and, and I got to go in, and media, I don't think, had, had that chance, had to been able to do that previously. So it's a very interesting process. I sat with a judge, and it's kind of like you watch a bunch of people play bridge. There's all these tables, and they put ballots out one by one, and everyone looks at them, and you know, they make little notes and they come up to the judge. And it's it's amazing to think about the ballots. You know, there's X's and check marks and shadows and circles and lines through it. And somebody was using a star at one point and no one could tell if you should be able to do that. Or some people literally write their names down in, in the circle, which is wrong. You can't identify yourself. I mean, there, there are a ton of irregularities that can be hashed out and it becomes about the intent of the voter but as Vaughn pointed out from the top i mean they also split both ways and you it's a hundred thirty four vote gap sounds like okay well maybe they could come up with that many ballots but you need twice as much because uh, you don't win them all for sure mm-hmm. and uh... as so i think it's an extremely long-shot chance at that margin to, to switch that riding. Yeah,
0: there is six days for uh, the different campaigns to apply. I think we're in day two since the final election result on Wednesday. Uh, another issue that, that cropped up yesterday that caught my eye that may have impacts uh, politically here in BC is Trans Mountain making its final investment decision, or Kinder Morgan rather, is making its final investment decision on Trans Mountain uh, pending an IPO. Uh, but that, in my view, is it was almost like a little bit of a gauntlet thrown down to at least two of the three BC political leaders. Keith?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Andrew Weaver says he wants to get intervener status still in this whole process. Uh, John Horgan says he wants to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline, and neither of them have explained exactly how a B.C. government's going to stop this pipeline. It's a federal pipeline. Rachel Notley, the Alberta Premier, has correctly argued it is just simply constitutionally wrong for a province to block another province's uh, export uh, to Tidewater. Uh so you know, it, it was surprising it didn't this didn't seem to come up much in the provincial election campaign mm. on the ground in Metro Vancouver. You didn't hear a lot about the Kinder Morgan pipeline. I thought it was gonna be this big explosive issue and it just it was Seem to be muted by other issues in Metro Vancouver. But of course, it's a, I think it's a, a significant issue where you are, uh, Shane, where the attitudes, I think, are, are very different. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rob wrote it earlier Christy Clark and the Liberals are not going to abandon their position on Kinder Morgan or Sightsee Dam um, to placate the Greens in any type of deal, power sharing agreement, because that is their base. That's what got them 41% of the vote, which is just you know, razor thin close to uh, an outright majority. So, uh, again, Weaver and Horgan, they they oppose this project, but I still have yet to hear the details from them how they're actually going to block this or take any concrete action to stopping it.
0: Yeah, I still find it interesting timing from Kinder Morgan's side of things, Vaughn.
3: Well, the they need to get the,
1: their money and their approval ready to go because the case is... Uh, the approval is before the federal court this fall. That case will be heard, and if the federal court upholds Ottawa's decision to approve the project, then Kinder Morgan has to be ready to roll. Uh, That also means that British Columbia has some time. I mean, they can posture all they want, but really the province's next opportunity to do anything about this is after the courts have ruled, and that would be sometime next year.
0: And as we've noted here, that's a tricky path for Andrew Weaver. If he hitches his wagon to the B.C. Liberals and he can't shut down the Trans Mountain Pipeline, he's certainly going to take a beating among his supporters, right?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the Liberals, I I think, realize, as Keith pointed out uh, out at the top there, and, and as Rachel Notley has said, there is really no way for the provincial government to stop it. They can hold it up a bit. They can become a nuisance in court and refuse to grant this permit here and allow access to this piece of land there if they really want. But uh, canceling it, stopping it is is not within their power. And so in that sense, you know, the Liberals would be perfectly fine, I think, giving Andrew Weaver some resources, some opportunity, some uh, power to go off and do his own thing. He's fighting on behalf of a number of voters in this province who expressed an opinion, and let's let him go and act on the best interests of British Columbia. And here you go fill your boots. Uh, it doesn't hurt the Liberals in any way whatsoever, and uh, Andrew gets to take his best shot, tire himself out on uh, all the things that he could do. So there is a win-win somewhere in that. Uh, it's an artful dance and a delicate balance, but uh, they could come out. It'd, it'd be harder with the NDP and the Greens because they have essentially the same position, and Andrew Weaver doesn't come out looking like he led anything there. He just uh, lined up behind uh, Horgan, uh, the more powerful of the players, to to uh, oppose the pipeline.
0: Yeah. Okay, guys, uh, final thoughts here before we uh, kick off for this Friday's show, but uh, Andrew Weaver set himself a Wednesday deadline, uh, next ball to drop. What do you think happens?
1: I think he's going to try very, very hard to give people some certainty by Wednesday. I think he reads the situation right, that people have been patient about this. They want to know who the government is going to be. And I think the talks are genuine and intense. And while I agree with everybody who thinks that the natural partnership on policy side is NDP-Greens, I think the mathematical thing and the wish for the Greens to have more time and keep their identity separate uh, it's not out of the question they would end up making their deal with the Liberals.
0: Yeah, I note Norman Spector's on Twitter this morning saying the scene is set for important talks today. Keith? <laughs>
3: Specter on Twitter is an interesting read because yeah. of course he's part of the Green negotiating team and and he retweets some of the things we put out there and others and you're trying to get, read what he's trying to do in terms of guessing the policy advice he's given Andrew Weaver. Uh, but uh, you know he could go either way here. I mean, I think he's going to get a lot of pressure from his own a number of his own supporters to go with the NDP but I think the poly science geeks in the Green Caucus or Green Party, uh, talking to him, may understand that the math doesn't work for them if they want to achieve long-term goals. Going with the NDP, I think, is a six-month proposition. Going with the Liberals, from probably by them two or three years, as I say have to hold their nose to go with them. But I think Weaver can also make the argument, this is not the Christy Christy Clark government I'm embracing from last year. This is a new government that I'm going to force change on and positive change that I will take credit for. I'm not sure he's actually going to make that bold move, but I think uh, those are the two polls he's looking at.
2: All
0: right, final word to you, Rob.
2: I would say Christy Clark better show up at some point publicly and start indicating that she's willing to change, or is changing, or is in the process of understanding what's going on. Because mm. this whole silence routine from her, uh, combined with these ridiculous statements that, uh, you know, this is a great election outcome because it allows for the opportunity for us to work together, is the same shtick that caused her to lose support in the election. So, I, I mean, I'm I am surprised that Christy Clark is not out trying to look like she has learned something at some point, and there, I think we're going to need to see that. In the meantime, I think the Greens will spend the weekend mulling over some things internally, and you'll start to get official proposals from both parties Monday, Tuesday, uh, in advance of Wednesday, things that are written down. There will be a, some type of written agreement, is my uh, is my take, based on what constitutionally needs to happen for something to occur uh, with the LG.
0: All right. Gentlemen, uh, my thanks as usual. I appreciate your insight, and I know my listeners do okay. as well. Bye bye. There we go. We'll talk to more uh, we'll talk more inside politics and what's going on as this thing develops right here on Inside Politics next week. Uh, on Friday, of course, with Vaughn Keith and Rob. Uh, coming up next, the Conservative Party is going to vote itself a new leader tomorrow. We'll talk to one of the candidates, Rick Peterson, on Inside Politics right after this. Radio NL.
2: RadioNL.com NL. Radio local.
0: First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Tomorrow, the Conservative Party of Canada will conclude a lengthy leadership campaign to choose the person to replace Stephen Harper, the party's last full-time leader. There's a field of 13 candidates vying for the leadership, including two from B.C. One of them joins me on the phone now, Rick Peterson. Rick, you dove into this as a relative political unknown and have surprised more than a few people before we dive into the meat and potatoes of all this. I have to ask you what's going through your head now that you're on the doorstep of this leadership vote.
4: Shane, it's been an amazing uh, campaign. It's been uh, nine months I've been it very much, very much looking forward to uh, tomorrow. We're all excited, and it's going to be a big weekend for the party and um, all of us who are running for the leadership. I think are, are very proud to have taken uh, taken a part in it, but we're all competitive, and we all want to see who's going to win.
0: All right. Is there anything you would have done differently now that you're kind of starting to look back on it, Rick? Are you, are you happy with everything you did, or no?
4: Not a single thing in terms of the the big things that we did, Shane. I think we could always uh, look back on uh, areas of improvement and maybe some policy things or some timing. But at the end of the day, Shane, it, uh, it was nine months of grueling back to back meetings across Canada and, uh, maybe, uh, figuring out how to work on four hour sleep instead of needing eight was what I'd do differently.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Rick, as you look forward to Saturday, obviously there's going to be a winner and there's going to be some losers. Uh, what do you think, honestly, your chances are in this thing right now?
4: Shane, if I, it all depends on the first round balloting. If I am uh, lucky enough to garner enough uh, number one votes to be in the top half, then it's possible. Anything's, you know, anything's possible. I do know I got lots of uh, number two, number three, number four votes. I think I was universally uh, one of Max Bernier's number two votes. So if I'm in that mix, Shane, then anything can happen. If I don't. Um, fall in that first uh, seven or eight out of the 13 in the uh, first round, then that's going to be very tough.
0: Tell me about the voting system, because I was talking to Kathy McLeod, who's backing Aaron O'Toole, and and mm-hmm. she's saying, well, the obviously the, the talk right now is that Maxime Bernier is the front runner. She says the real wild card here is the system itself and this idea of 100 points per riding, which could really change the dynamic.
4: It is, Shane, and it's probability um, nobody... Nobody knows how the number two and the number three and the number of votes go, so it's it's exceedingly interesting, it's exceedingly complicated, and I don't think there's one of us of the 13 candidates that feels comfortable knowing where they're going to end up, so that's what makes it so exciting about Saturday night.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you think that it's going to be a pretty short night, or do you think it could be the potential to be kind of going long into the night on this thing?
4: What they're going to do, Shane, is start resulting, uh, issuing the results around 5 p.m. Eastern uh, by 15-minute increments. So the first round, and then the second, and then the third. Uh, who knows how far it's going to go? Uh, people who spend their time looking over polling data are saying it could go seven or eight or nine or ten or 11 rounds. So none of us really knows, and uh, we'll have to wait and find out. I, I do think it's going to go at least four or five rounds it doesn't appear that anybody's going to walk away in the first couple rounds with it so uh we'll be done by seven thirty p.m eastern starting at five so uh it'll be an interesting two hours i can tell you that
0: do you think the process should have been changed or tweaked somewhat uh, rick to kind of narrow the field a little bit as we went from the beginning to the end of this thing i hear a lot of talk about people saying wow still 13 people in the running
4: I think 13 people made this a strong race, uh, Shane. If you look at the 13 of us, all of us have different backgrounds. I think the party is stronger for 13 candidates. Um, membership is up to 259,000. The fundraising that each of us did as a leadership candidate, plus the fundraising that we did, uh, that, the, that the party did, Shane, puts us in strong footing. I think there's a lot of people who have joined the party because of this big field of leadership candidates that wouldn't have been there before. And what I'm struck with, Shane, is as I've got to know each of the candidates. There's some really good ideas. There's some really good people. I'd be, uh, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected leader, I'm ready. If somebody else is elected leader, I'm ready to follow any one of those other 12 people. And uh, to come out of leadership race with, I think, a strong, united, conservative party that we will tomorrow night or Saturday night is a big part. The reason for that is the fact it was such a large field
0: one of the things that struck me, and I noticed it uh, kind of a, 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 the example of it anyway, in your in your Twitter feed recently, uh, where you went through each of the candidates you're running against and and cited uh, what you like about them or their ideas, and, and it seemed just kind of a different idea from yourself. It's kind of striking a bit of a positive, uplifting tone.
4: You know, Shane, it is. I, I mean, listen, I'm competitive. I think I'm the best candidate, and I think that my ideas uh, will resonate across Canada. I strongly believe that I can beat Justin Trudeau, but I, I know very well that every single one of my of my rivals, they've got good ideas. They've got things that I admire. And, uh, again, coming back to what I said earlier, pointing out those strengths rather than pointing out our weaknesses, but pointing out our strengths. And if you look at the front bench and the combined force that we're going to have, uh, we're going to be on a roll. And um, I just thought it was – good to highlight the strengths uh, of my rivals and and at the end of the day we're all going to be part of the same family.
0: Now this large group of 13 candidates and even larger at some points, all of you guys have floated platforms, ideas uh, from all spectrums. Uh, Now whoever chooses, whoever the people choose to lead the party obviously is going to have their own ideas to imprint on that party but do you think that there are other ideas from other candidates and vice versa that, that could be used and cultivated going forward?
4: Yeah, our uh, membership decides policy, Shane, in the Conservative Party of Canada. So we have policy conventions. If you look at the number of ideas that have come out on everything from economic uh, taxation to social policy to ideas for firearms, for uh, immigration, what you're going to find is a very lively, rich policy convention next time the party gets together. So that has to be positive. It has to be good. The leadership race, Shane, as I uh, as I mentioned in that, in that Twitter feed, a leadership race is a time for bold ideas. And I think what we saw from a number of the candidates were some truly big and bold ideas. The uh, leadership coming out of this will have to continue to work, cultivate those best ideas, and then come up with something that all of the members can sign off on and then go into the next election campaign. So uh, the most important thing, Shane, is the economy. That's why I focused on tax cuts, zero corporate income tax for any business, and a flat 15% personal tax across the board for every uh, Canadian. So those two things are designed to stimulate the economy, and I'm uh, very certain that uh, my contribution to this race will will go well into the next leadership uh, or into the next federal election campaign with, uh, with a big part of the Conservative plank.
0: All right. Uh, as far as going forward here, Rick, in your mind, regardless of who takes the helm after Saturday, uh, in your opinion, what does the party have to do to kind of tweak or adjust to, to really uh, mount a challenge and beat Justin Trudeau?
4: If you watch my speech tomorrow night, uh, Shane, it starts at uh, the speech all started at seven o'clock uh, Eastern. But I'm going to answer that question exactly, and the answer to that is we have to keep the momentum that we have right now. We have to continue to be positive. We have, to, we have to continue to be confident. We have to continue to think big picture. And we have to open up our party to ideas that are outside of the mainstream of what we've always talked about in the past. And if we do that, Shane, if we earn the confidence of Canadians, then we'll, then we'll be back in power. If we are a party of intolerance, if we are an inward-thinking party, then uh, we'll be on the opposition benches forever. And uh, none of us wants that. And, and it's not good for Canada.
0: Yeah. Uh, Rick, I've asked you this question before, but I think it's worth asking again. Uh, again, regardless of the outcome Saturday, whether you're the leader or not, uh, it sounds like you're invested in this. It sounds like you want to be in the political world. So uh, regardless of the outcome, you're going to run as an MP in the next federal election?
4: Shane, I've got one thing. on that's uh, tomorrow night. I'd love to move into Stornoway on uh, Sunday and have my first caucus meeting on Monday morning. I haven't thought beyond that. And uh, the focus for the next 48 hours will be uh, moving into Stornoway if I'm lucky enough to get the mandate from the members on Sunday.
0: All right. But needless to say, you're enjoying this, and it I don't think if if I read you the way I think I read you, I don't think you want it to stop anytime soon.
4: It is a lot of fun, Shane, and uh, uh, I, I'm truly humbled by what we saw across Canada. We saw this country, every one of us who are leadership candidates, we've seen the depth and the richness of the country. We've seen the goodwill of the members. We've seen new people joining the party. And, uh, it's been an experience of a lifetime and I'm glad the experience is ending. It is exhausting. It is tiring, but I know that the, uh, the benefits of it are going to carry on for me for the rest of my life. And, uh, I'll help the party in any way I can after Saturday
0: night. All right. And I guess my last question here, Rick, is uh, one of the big problems, uh, of course, uh, on the Canadian federal scene, uh, regardless which party you are, is this east-west divide. Now, Maxime Bernier obviously firmly planted in the east. We had a couple uh, contenders in the west. But uh, do you think that regardless of who does this thing, that there needs to be or there will? Do you think, A, is there is there an east-west divide? And B, uh, whoever the leader is, is, is there anything that they can do uh, to kind of bring uh, the country together?
4: No, there's no east-west divide. Uh, Shane, I have a tremendous amount of support in Quebec. Maxime has a lot of support in uh, Alberta, uh, being shoulder to shoulder with these candidates in debates all the way from uh, Nanaimo and Victoria out to uh, out to Halifax. there's no east-west divide in uh, in the party. There is a very strong desire to see core conservative principles, and we're all following that. So the policy differences that we have, Shane aren't that different. I think the uh, the biggest obstacle that we're going to have to overcome, and we will be able to overcome it, is a positive, vibrant, open attitude towards Canada and towards our future. If we can keep that uh, tone, then we're going to do fine in 2019. The bloom, we all know, will come off the Justin Trudeau rose in 2019, and we're going to be ready to offer an alternative that Canadians can understand and can follow and can buy into. And We've got two years to do it, and tomorrow night is actually the first period of this game, so we're looking
0: forward to it. Rick, thank you for your time. We'll be watching to see how you fare tomorrow.
4: Thanks, Shane. It's a real pleasure. Thank you for your call, okay?
0: There you go. Rick Peterson, one of 13 candidates vying for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. We'll find out who the winner is tomorrow night. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. We'll be back at Inside Politics here on NL next Friday the Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL 610 AM in
4: Kamloops and streaming online at radionl.com.